This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. How many times have you been on a flight and heard something like this? Ladies and gentlemen, we are going through an area of turbulence. We ask all passengers to please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Thank you. But you may hear more announcements like that because of climate change. A study from the University of Reading in England finds turbulence could get two to three times worse if carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere continue to rise. In other climate news, you may have heard that 2016 was the fifth hottest year on record in Colorado. As part of CPR's ongoing climate coverage, we're going to talk through these issues and other developments with two Colorado scientists. Scott Denning is a professor of atmospheric science at Colorado State University, and Jim White directs the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at CU Boulder. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, Scott, in layman's terms, what's the science behind these turbulence findings? Well, I think, uh, frankly, um, increased airplane turbulence is probably among the least of our worries with regard to climate change. Uh, but but the, uh, the, the reason why that study found uh, the increase in the future has to do with um, driving the jet stream harder and uh, ha- having more planes in a faster wind regime um, up at the altitudes where jet planes fly. Um, I, as somebody who flies quite a bit, um, I guess it kind of makes my stomach twitch a little bit, but it's it's probably more like damage to the world economy we ought to be working worried about uh, rather than bumps on airplanes. And yet I wonder if a study like this is a way to bring climate change, which can feel like a really big issue, home to people, if not through scary means. Well, you know, bumps on airplanes, uh, no water for your yard, um, hard to grow crops in Colorado, fires and droughts and floods, oh my. Uh, I, I don't know. Airplane turbulence seems kind of far down on the list to me. Now, this study says that the, these effects would be noticed if there were a doubling of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that as a result, severe clear air turbulence would increase by 149%. I guess I'd, I'd like a clearer picture on whether a doubling of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is even in the cards. How would you answer that, Jim? Oh, I think it's uh, in the cards. We <clears throat> Keep in mind we're doubling from a level of pre-industrial, which is about 280 parts per million. So 560 is what we consider doubling. We're at 400 right now. Um, we can get there. If we don't do anything about um, CO2 production, uh, we will get there by the end of this century. I'll say that this was published in a journal called called uh, Advances in Atmospheric Sciences, and indeed it uh, has to do with effects of the jet stream, as you said, this high-altitude channel of fast-flowing air. Uh, Jim White, I know you're not in the airline industry, but do you think that uh, those who operate airlines ought to be concerned about this? Um. Yes, I, I certainly think that they ought to pay attention to it. The uh, changes that we've seen on the planet uh, and will continue to see are not all positive. And um, as we learn more about how the atmosphere is going to respond, and Scott's your your expert here, I would take the cue from him. Um, I think the uh, we do need to, to pay attention to what's going on in the atmosphere. It will change. And if indeed it's more turbulence, that's not going to make me happy either. Hmm. 
I think that something everyone in Colorado can relate to is weather closer to the ground, whether it's ski seasons that get shorter, temperatures that appear to be rising. According to the Colorado Climate Center, 2016 was the fifth hottest year in recorded history in the state, with temperatures averaging 47.3 degrees. It's about 2.7 degrees above normal. Worldwide, 2016 was the hottest year since scientists began tracking data in 1880. Jim White, you recently attended a seminar at A Basin that focused on climate change in the ski industry. How concerned were folks there? I think folks are very concerned. Um, skiing is a, a, one of those activities that defines us here in Colorado. It's also a multi-billion dollar injection into our economy. Um, we pay attention to snow, and snow requires, or I should say skiing requires uh, three things. It requires cold, and that's becoming in less uh, common supply. It requires water, which is a real issue, uh, and it requires gravity. Unfortunately, gravity we've got in abundance. Hmm. Uh, you know, I want to look at, at these numbers in particular related to temperature, because um, according to the State climatologist Nolan Deskin, the hottest year on record goes to 2012. And then some of the hottest years were way back, like 1934 and 1954. So, Scott, when you hear that and and people think, well, gosh, there have been hot years in the past. What's different? Why do you say this is climate change? How do you answer that? Well, the temperature here in Colorado um, goes up and down year to year for a bunch of different reasons. I mean, a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, air masses blowing in and blowing out the kind of day-to-day changes in the weather. Um, climate change is driven globally. It's the whole atmosphere that that is trapping the heat of the sun uh, because of the extra CO2. So uh, you really get a much better read on climate change when you look at the average temperature across much bigger regions than just Colorado. Mm. Um on the other hand, let's think about the years that you just described. I mean, you talk about 2012. Um, here in Fort Collins, that was the High Park fire year. Um, hundreds of homes burned. Uh, hor- horrific drought. Um, we had smoke here in Fort Collins uh, for pretty much the whole summer. My mom died of lung disease during those fires. Oh, my. Uh, thir- 34, I think you said. 30, 1930s, mid-30s. Yeah, exactly. That was the Dust Bowl. Uh, I mean, um, hot, hot years are not pleasant around here. It's not uh, a matter of um, airplane turbulence. It's more like catastrophic fire and drought and farmers going out of business and uh, losing our forests. Think about what that does to the snow as in your previous question. Um, besides skiing, the snow is where we get all our water. Uh, snowpack is is far and away the biggest reservoir we have. Uh, that's where all of the water for five and a half million people in Colorado comes from. Uh, that's where all of our agriculture water comes from. From from uh, you know runoff. It it's uh, really a lot closer to home when you think about uh, the impact of those hot years like that on on our water supply, on our forests, sure, on our ski industry. And I imagine more salient to you than turbulence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably more salient to most people. Yeah. Jim White, what would you add? Um, I agree with Scott 100%. I, the, uh, what makes us Colorado um, is water. And we don't have that 
that substance in abundance, and we need to be we need to pay very very careful attention to it. Um, if you know, we don't we don't want to become uh, a very dry deserty place. We need that water. And um, the future predictions uh, for warmer and warmer climates tell us that we're going to have less and less water available to us, particularly in the summertime. And uh, snow is indeed the uh, the biggest reservoir we have, and it's free. It doesn't cost us. We don't have to dig holes in the ground. We don't have to drown beautiful rivers in order to collect that water. And uh, that may be our future if uh, the planet continues to warm up. I think what was really important to note there that you said, Scott, um, is that it's it's not enough to look at one year's temperature in one spot on the globe. That in order to understand the the forces at play, you have to take a more global view. Uh, just as a as a consumer of news, I think that's important to understand. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking through. Some climate news with Scott Denning, professor of atmospheric science at Colorado State University, and Jim White, who directs the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at CU Boulder. And I'd like to talk about climate change as it relates to the new administration. So uh, we've seen, of course, Scott Pruitt become the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, an agency he sued when he was attorney general of Oklahoma. Uh, According to The New York Times, shortly after President Donald Trump took office, Nearly all mentions of climate change programs from the White House and State Department websites were purged, and the administration ordered a freeze on federal grant spending at the EPA and other government agencies. I'll say that some, like the EPA, were ordered to stop posting news and information online. Uh, Now, some of these orders, like the one covering the EPA, have since been lifted, important to note. Uh, Also concerning to the scientific community was a report late last month that Republican mega donors Robert Mercer and his daughter Rebecca attended something called the Heartland Institute Conference in Washington. Uh, it's regularly reported that the pair carry a great deal of influence with President Trump, and the Heartland is well known for, according to the Washington Post, embracing views that have long been considered outlier positions by the scientific community. Scott Denning, you've attended the Heartland Conference, I think, three times. Can you give us a sense of some of the stances they've taken there that appear to run contrary to the work being done by scientists like you? Yeah, I've been um, three times to their conferences, uh, once in Chicago and once in uh, Washington, D.C., and then at their sort of home office in in the suburbs outside of Chicago. Uh, they they um, push very hard uh the sort of contrarian line that um, CO2 is not going to warm the climate, that climate change is good. I mean, it's sort of a different story. Uh, each speaker, you hear you hear that um, that climate isn't going to warm, but then you hear that uh, warming is good. Uh, you hear that CO2 has no effect, but then on the other hand, they, they, they'll tell you that CO2 is wonderful because it grows plants. Um, it seems a little um, disjointed to me. Uh, it's quite a an influential group. Uh, when I went uh, first time, probably 600 people came to the conference. Uh, they had 78 speakers in three days, and I was the only mainstream scientist at the conference. Only only uh, one to sort of give the, the the regular scientific view. Why do you go? Is it for that reason? Well, um, people have argued that uh, scientists shouldn't go to these things um, because it just sort of legitimizes it. And I guess that's a point. Uh, but ignoring them hasn't made them go away either. Um, my view is that uh, engaging 
people um, in a an honest and authentic way. You, you can't go wrong by um, talking with people. Um, I go in open-minded. I speak from my heart. I speak uh, the truth as I see it. And um, I find that to be reasonably effective, I mean, c- compared to just ignoring it. Have you ever changed a mind there? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. Um, probably not the organizers, right? Not not uh, the people that run Heartland. But uh, I spoke to a room of 600 people uh, in a giant Marriott in downtown uh, Chicago. And when I first got up, uh, lots of crossed arms and sort of angry looks. Um, but during the course of a 30-minute talk, they visibly loosened up. They were laughing at my jokes, nodding their heads, smiling a little bit. And then um, probably the most rewarding thing was that when they uh, ran into me during the conference, like in the hallway or the bathroom or the bar at night, um, a bunch of dozens of people came up to me and said, thank you so much for coming. I never really thought about it this way. So I, I hope I changed some minds. Will you continue to go? Yeah, I'd go again. Okay. Absolutely. I think talking to people is better than not talking to them. Jim White, after the president took office, there was a lot of talk about research grants being rescinded, federal money drying up. In the 2015-16 fiscal year, the CU Boulder campus alone received approximately $332 million in federal research money. I wonder if you might take us into your world, into your laboratory. Are you and your peers feeling pressure to make sure, I don't know, projects are complete, lest funding dries up? Um, We are definitely having conversations about it. Uh, We understand how the federal government works. The president submits a budget. It's actually Congress that passes the budget. Mm -hmm. So we'll find out whether or not Congress goes along with the White House in terms of the budget recommendations. But the budget recommendations from the White House were very clear. They did not uh, think that climate-related spending was productive, and they didn't want to spend money on it. Um, This is... uh, it flies in the face of physics, and you, you can't do that for very long and, and, uh, and survive. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, cooler heads will prevail in Congress and that they'll recognize that, number one, it's a very small amount of money that we spend in terms of the total amount we spend. Um, but number two, it's extremely important for um, keeping us prepared for changing climate, for sea level rise, for all the things that we know, because the physics is indeed simple, we know it's going to happen, um, and we need to be prepared. Uh, we don't want to be caught short. Money spent now uh, will save uh, many, many times over uh, that money down the road uh, in probably and hopefully better policy and better approaches. Climate change, an awfully heavy topic, gentlemen. I wonder if we might end on a hopeful note. If you could each give us an example of something, I don't know, you're working on or that you've been made aware of about climate change research that has you excited. Scott Denning? Yeah, there was a paper uh, last year um, by uh, actually one of Jim's colleagues at uh, NOAA in Boulder um, regarding uh, the transmission grid, the electrical transmission grid. I don't know if you realize, but um, our AC power, alternating current power, only can be transmitted about 300 miles from where it from where it is generated. Imagine a world where every car had to be built uh, within 300 miles of where you buy it, or 
um, you know, every piece of, uh, of electronics that you, that you buy had to be made right here. Huh. Um, that would be crazy, but that's how we do our electricity. The, the new approach is uh, direct current DC, um, transmission grid run through, um, the right of ways and the median strips of freeways. And, you know, you could imagine generating uh, solar power in Arizona and using it, um, at night in, in New York or, you know, wind power from Iowa powering uh, the, the lights and heat in, in Seattle. Um, long distance transmission would really revolutionize the uh, opportunity for renewable energy on our grid. And this paper sees that as a closer possibility? Yeah, it turns out um, it's actually quite cost effective. You could probably reduce CO2 emissions in the United States 80% in the electricity sector um, by 2030 at no increase in the cost of electricity. Hmm. Jim White, what would you leave us with? Um, I think it's important to recognize that uh, the long-term goal here is the sustainable future for our children, grandchildren, etc. And um, the pathway to sustainability, as it turns out, is paved with uh, what I would call uh, good actions and good intentions. A good example of that is we are going to have to get population under control. We don't like to talk about it. It's sort of the third rail of conversations. But the key to population control, and demographers will tell this over and over again, is the empowerment of women. When women have uh, greater economic power, greater political power, they tend to have fewer children per woman. They have those children later. And population, as we've seen in industrialized countries, the population growth rate slows down. So guys, you know, share power. Um, It is uh, not only good for you, but it's good for the planet. A holistic view there from Jim White, who directs the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at CU Boulder. We heard from Scott Denning, professor of atmospheric science at Colorado State University, and they reflected with us on some of the climate change stories in the news. We'd like to hear from you. What questions do you have about climate change or the science behind it? Or maybe you've taken your own steps to address the issue in your own way. Share that with us, too. You're welcome to email news at CPR.org news at cpr.org. After President Trump's inauguration, Denver's Curious Theater Company did something unprecedented. It mounted a new and largely untested production mid-season. Building the Wall is a politically charged response to the president's immigration stances. It's by a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, and Denver is only the second city to stage it. Katie Maltese is Curious Theater's managing director. Katie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. A theater company typically plans its season a year or two in advance. Why did you feel the urgency to put this show on? You know, um, Chip Walton, who's our artistic director, and I uh, really got a lot of response after the election, felt very strongly personally, and felt that um, our mission is to engage the community in provocative modern theater to um, engage people in contemporary issues. And there is no contemporary issue more relevant than uh, what's happening with the Trump administration. And so uh, as soon as we heard this play was out there, we both really felt strongly that we wanted to put it on and help our audiences and the Denver community have a platform to talk about these issues. Tell us about the playwright. So the playwright's Robert Schenken. He uh, is probably most well-known here in Denver for All the Way. Um, And he's also done a number of screen productions. Um, Hacksaw Ridge is his latest. And he's um, 
uh, a Pulitzer Prize winner for the Kentucky Cycle and a Tony winner as well. And he was very motivated before the election, actually, to write this piece. Um, he wrote it what he calls a, a fury um, shortly before the election, uh, based on the rhetoric that he was seeing and sort of following it to its natural conclusion. The play is set in a prison meeting room in Texas. The year is uh, 2019, I think. There are two characters, a professor and an inmate that the professor is interviewing. Uh, the inmate is awaiting trial. For what? So he's actually been through trial and he's awaiting his sentencing. Um, he is what what amounts to the fall guy for uh, taking the rhetoric that we're hearing now and during the election about um, kind of rounding up immigrants in a large scale um, and then what that might turn into if we were to sort of follow it to kind of its Orwellian conclusion. Um, and he's the one taking the fall for that. Uh, he was a prison um, administrator. And so he's the one that saw all of this happen under his watch. Indeed, during the campaign, there was talk of mass roundups of immigrants who were in the country illegally. Uh, the president has since backed off from the idea of mass deportations um, itself. Th this show does paint, gosh, like the darkest possible picture yeah. of a Trump presidency. Um, spoiler alert here. It ends in mass killings and the president's impeachment. How helpful is that dire a picture when the country is so divided right now? You know, I, I've gotten that question from people that haven't seen the play. You know, are we are we I'll say that I saw. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And are we being divisive? And I think that what's important is that um, we see a lot of people in the country today, myself included, that sort of are unsure what to do next. You know, do I grab my picket sign? Am I supposed to call my senator? There's so much happening and there's so much. There's just a barrage of information of what you should do. And it's really easy to become complacent and say, well, I'm so overwhelmed that I'm just not going to do anything. And what I think this play does beautifully is say, if I do nothing, this could happen. This is not a play about Donald Trump. This is a play about authoritarianism. Wait, this is not a play about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is on the playbill. He is on the playbill. And he, his, yeah, we used his, his image as a graphic. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then his name is spoken right throughout the play. He is the president when this goes down. But I think, you know, stronger than one person is what happens when an entire society becomes complacent. You know, Hitler couldn't have been Hitler if an entire country hadn't gone along with it and if he hadn't had generals and uh, people at his side that allowed that to happen. One person cannot completely rewrite history without everyone else going along with it. And that's what this play is really getting to the heart of, is that we as citizens have a power that we cannot just abdicate. And so it's really a play about guarding against authoritarianism. You see this as um, a warning of what happens if justice doesn't prevail, if neighbors don't sort of advocate for neighbors. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there are any number of people who would look at President Trump's immigration stance and say, fundamentally, people who are in the country illegally don't have a right to be here. Um, and the president is concerned about uh, American safety and terrorism. 
um, that those aren't fundamentally uh, very controversial stances and that this, this might be an overreaction to, to those two fundamental ideas about immigration and national security. What do you say? Yeah, I think uh, I think that I would agree with you that a lot of people do say, well, if you're in the country illegally, then um, we have a right to kick you out, right? That that's a common phrase that I've heard often um, as we've been doing this. One of the characters says at one right. point, what, what good is a nation if there aren't borders and there aren't recognition of those borders? Right. I think that um, what has happened is that we have taken that so far. And the question is really how. Um, so are we are we actually guarding against um, illegal people being in the country and the horrors of that? Or are we trying to scare people by saying terrorism? And when you actually look at the facts of our terrorist um, attacks being played out by illegal immigrants... Not not really uh, when you look at it. And actually, the play goes into detail about that and also about, um, you know, looking back to 9-11 and saying, well, uh, Saudi Arabia was excluded from the two first travel bans under the Trump administration under the guise of protecting against terrorism when Saudi Arabia was the country that was most involved with those 9-11 attacks, given that they're citizens. So, Many of the hijackers came from Saudi Arabia. Exactly. So I think um, the question isn't, do, do we have a right to protect our borders, but rather, how do we do that? And what justification are we using? We are speaking about building the wall. It is a quickly mounted play put on by Curious Theatre Company, written by a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. And uh, I'm joined by Katie Maltese, who's Curious Theater's managing director. Is this protest art? It is. Yeah, we're very strong that this is a this is a protest piece. Um, Are you preaching to the choir, or do you hope that people come who aren't in the choir? You know, sort of both. So I think the preponderance of our audience has been people that, um, as you say, are in the choir. And I also think that um, millions of people across the U.S. go to church every day, every Sunday, so that they can be preached to. And so we really see this as a rallying cry to the choir to say, don't be complacent. Think about every action and inaction that you're taking as a as a way to move the needle. I've been delighted when people come and say, you know, I wasn't really sure if I was going to like it or if I should come or if it was just going to make me angry because either I really strongly believe in border control or perhaps I voted for Trump. And it's been great. Every show ends with a talk back that includes members of um, either immigration, social justice or civil liberties organizations. And so we've gotten a great amount of feedback from our audience and have been able to have a real conversation, which is what we hoped for. So Trump voters have been in the audience? I know of at least one uh, that was that actually said I voted for Trump. Um, you know, I think that's a hard thing to say after you see this play. And so I don't, I don't know if more have been. Uh, is this murky territory for Curious just as a nonprofit? Like, it's so interesting, the line between kind of electioneering, which is not allowed for nonprofits mm-hmm. and and protest art. Right. Are you is that a line you're aware of and trying to navigate here or what? You know, so so the law is very clear that you can't campaign for a particular candidate, which, of course, we are outside of an election cycle. So there's no fear of that. We have been. Although sometimes it can feel like you're always, 
in an election cycle. I'm not sure what that means, but yes. Okay. Um, well, Trump isn't running. I'll say that. So we are um, not uh, we aren't actively campaigning for one thing or another. Um, it is squarely within our mission to do this piece. And so um, we don't we don't fear that we are um, outside of our legal bounds as a 501c3. However, because we do have donors and people that have that concern, we've been very careful about ensuring that this play is paying for itself. It is an added piece of the season. And so all of the fundraising was done specifically for this piece, all the ticket sales, that sort of thing. So um, if there ever was a question, uh, we could very easily point to our books and show that distinction. And and for some context here, it's not like Curious hasn't taken on political and, right. you know, hefty <laughs> issues in the past. I think war is a strong theme and the question of war and peace and violence. Um, does this make Curious more flexible into the future? Like, do you, do you emerge from this and think, we can do more of this almost um, instant, just add water, you know, <laughs> political, current theater? You know, I think we were all really galvanized by this, both by the response and by... Um, how we were able to do it. Um, And so I think this showed us that it can be done. Mm. Um, I think it's up to the playwrights of the world to decide whether that's something that will continue to happen in the kind of immediacy that we're seeing. But, um, you know, it was a risk to do this piece, and we feel like it paid off both for Curious and for our patrons um, in starting the conversation. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Katie Maltese is Curious Theater Company's managing director. This play, Building the Wall, runs through Wednesday. You can see photos from the production at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. Is it time to plant yet? That's what gardeners in Colorado want to know. Luckily, we have gardener Larry Stebbins with us again. He directs Pikes Peak Urban Gardens, and he wrote the Backyard Vegetable Gardening Guide, a monthly primer for gardeners in Colorado. And Larry, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Ryan. This is uh, this is great. What an exciting time of the year. And I'll tell you something. It's been a crazy spring. I mean, come on. We've had some of the warmest March temperatures and you know, that we've had in a long time. And it gets people a little antsy. And, yeah, you always get this, uh, is it time yet? Is it time yet? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and of course, in Colorado, it's so often the case that it's warm. And then you act on that warmth. And then Mother Nature deals you a rather frosty blow. So, I, oh, oh, she sure does sometimes, yeah. yep. What is the f- fundamental answer to that question? Is it time to plant yet? Uh now is time. <laughs> now is time, but only for a few things, Ryan. And uh, that's the that's the thing. I mean, we have peas coming up in our garden because I was lucky enough to get them in during the warmth of about three weeks ago. Uh, but then remember, it got a little cool and it got a little snowy. And uh, and I looked out the last 15 days and we're going to have some days that are still going to touch the 32, 33, 34 degree mark. And I'll tell you something, you cannot get your tomatoes or any of your warm season crops out just yet. So. Mm. Okay. But there is there is a lot of things to do. Yeah, give me an example. So peas were one. Um, what else can go in the ground? 
Well, l- let me let me back up on peas since we're talking about that. Here's here's what we found out that's really beneficial is if you're going to plant like snap peas, you know, like those sugar snap peas that you eat the whole pod, mm-hmm. you know, which are so good and or snow peas where you eat the pod. Um, you know, what we do is we soak the seeds overnight, um, actually longer than that, but we soak them in, in you know, uh, overnight um, in water. And, uh, and then we pour off the water and we keep them in a jar and then we keep them moist and we do it just like you would if you were making sprouts, you know, like alfalfa sprouts. We moisten them twice a day inside that jar until we see them start to break and form a little root that comes out. And once they do, you know, it takes about three or four days. Once they do, then plant them out into your garden and you'll have tremendous success and uh, the cool weather won't bother them at all. Oh, little wow. Tip. You're setting them up for success, your peas. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it works great. And, uh, and you, you know, you'll get peas when everybody else is still waiting for theirs to germinate in the cool soil because you've popped them out of that seed, you know, get it, got them going. And once they're going, they're going to be fine. So um, that's that's one thing to do. And you know, and again, all peas, whether you want the edible pods or whether you want the shelling peas, such as, you know, the Marvels or there's a Maestro or there's a lot of different ones out there, Alaska. And, uh, you know, you let those grow until the pea seed inside gets gets big and and still green. And then you pick them. And, of course, you can eat fresh peas. And I'll tell you, on a salad, nothing better than fresh peas on a nice, crisp, crisp salad. Yeah, I love the sound they make, too. Uh, you <laughs> you advised against tomatoes at this point. Anything else I can be taking care of now? Well, I want to, you know, this is a kind of an easy thing. We tell people leaves, roots, and bulbs. Those are the things you can get in the ground right now. Um, so leaf things, uh, you know, things like spinach. Um, you know, we planted spinach already, and it's starting to come up. Um, we planted kale and it's starting to come up. Uh, so any of the leafy things that you would probably end up putting in a salad, um, those can go in right now. And, and we urge people to, um, to, to, to there's, here's another little tip, uh, Ryan, which we think helps get these seeds uh, off to a good start is many times it gets really warm during the day and then cool at night. Yeah. Well, the seeds dry out a little bit. So you might not. So here's what we say is plant in a slight little trench make that trench, you know, just a little, you know, a half an inch little little trench all the way down a little row where you're going to plant the seeds and then put the seeds in, whether it be spinach or lettuce or, or whatever you're planting on those greens, and then cover them up with about a half inch of soil. But here's the trick. Get yourself some burlap and uh, just regular brown burlap. You can get it at the fabric store, <clears throat> excuse me, or you may even find some used burlap somewhere and cut out a strip that just fits inside that. Moisten the burlap too. And then that will keep that soil underneath a little more moist. And as soon as they germinate, which is in about four or five days, maybe a week, remove the burlap and you'll get your seeds off to a good start. Okay. So the burlap is being put on top of the the planted seeds. After you you put the seeds in and put the half inch of soil on top and you water that, make sure it's watered well, then put the moist burlap on top and moisten it again and just water the burlap as if you were watering the ground. But check every day to make sure that uh, once they start to sprout, you remove the burlap because they can't grow through that. Oh, fascinating. Uh, And you'll you'll have really good luxury and do the same for carrots too. Do the same for carrots. This is kind of cataclysmic thinking, but I'm looking down the line at more bad weather and the, I know it. the hail that so often hits Colorado and no, most notably my car. Um, oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like they survive the cold and then comes the hail. What do you recommend for hail protection? 
Well, there's a there's a hail netting out that's hitting the market now, and many of the independent garden shops around town uh, will carry it. It's called anti-hail netting. And you can do a Google search on that, and you'll see anti-hail netting. And it's uh, it's really kind of a, a polymer-based, you know, it's like a, a fabric, like a synthetic fabric, but it's a netting. And uh, I just want to tell you, Ryan, my, you know, I live in Colorado Springs, and we got beat up last year with hail. Mm-hmm. And I had $20,000 damage to my house and zero damage to my garden. <laughs> my wife says we need to put a hail cloth over our home. <laughs> it works so well, and it's inexpensive, and that's the best part, and you can use it year after year. And we just build hoop tunnels. You get that PVC pipe, that white half-inch PVC pipe, pull it over your garden, push it into the soil, and you've got little hoops over your garden, and just drape this over. And we put horizontal pieces on, if you could imagine, three, one on each side and one on the top to stabilize it. And uh, that'll keep it nice and firm so you have a little tunnel. And then you just put this hail netting on it. And we use just regular those cable ties, you know, and just put them on and zip, boom, tie it down to that. And I'll tell you something, it's wonderful. So that should protect you from any hail problems that uh, that you get there. So <laughs> It will work. There it are work. some folks who don't necessarily want to grow vegetables but want to put in things that require maybe less water. Jen Ketchum wrote on our Facebook page, We're curious about grass alternatives and walkable plants for our lawn. I had to look that up. Walkable just means you can walk on them. Um, She says that... Oh, okay. That's what they meant. Okay. Yeah. It's just mud now. So we'd like to do something, but don't want the maintenance and water usage that comes with a traditional lawn. Jen, thanks for writing that question. Um, Yeah. Larry, what do you think? Well, you know, that's that's a great question. You know, I mean, there are a lot of substitutes for uh, for just regular bluegrass yard. The, the thing is, if your soil is well prepared underneath your uh, your sod, whatever type you have, you're going to require less watering no matter what. And even if you put in native grasses, if the soil isn't well prepared, it is still going to demand water to keep it a- around. And here's one thing is once you, once you try to get a, a native grass established, it's going to take quite a bit of water to do that. Huh. Once it gets going, then it uses quite a bit less but uh, but don't think you can just put it in and kind of forget about it. You got to prepare the soil and talk to your local nurseryman and uh, get good amendments. You know things to make the soil have nice, good drainage, and then you can go ahead and reseed it. But to take out your bluegrass is really quite a quite a um, a task because those roots go down, and you you know it's really difficult to do it. So uh, there is a there is, it's tough. It's tough, Ryan. And you know we solarize. So real quickly we. If we're going to take out our bluegrass instead of trying to kill it with chemicals, you know, that we don't agree with, uh-huh. uh, the use of those, you know, weed killers and grass killers, because they're so persistent in our in our environment and they harm so many things, that we then will just cover the area we want to kill, and it looks ugly for about two weeks, with white clear plastic or black plastic, doesn't matter. And you just use landscape pins and pin it down so it doesn't blow away. The heat will kill the grass. And then you remove that after two weeks, and then you're ready to plant right in there. You 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 do what's called drilling. You it's a method to poke holes in the ground to you know to put the seed in, and uh, then then plant in your native grasses. Yeah. What what is but, an example but, of a native grass you'd recommend? Well, there's there's so many that, that are hitting the varieties uh, that are out, but there's perennial ryegrass. There are wheat grasses that are out. Uh, some are bunching, which grows in clumps, and others will. 
have a little more of a lawn look, and of course, the ever-favorite buffalo grass. So uh, whatever fits their needs and the look that they want and the frequencies, and they look a little a little shabby, but you know it's that rustic look, and a lot of people like it, so uh, not a bad choice. Uh, Larry, when we told folks on Facebook that this conversation was coming up, an interesting a conversation got started online about bamboo. Someone wants to plant bamboo outside her home in Colorado. Is that is that a thing? Uh, it, it actually, it will grow here. And I know that because at the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo down here in Colorado Springs, they have bamboo growing around, uh, you know, the, the whole zoo area there. And, uh, of course, they have to contain it. And as anyone who's done any research on bamboo, it's a very invasive plant. Um, you know, it will spread and it grows quickly. It's one of the fastest growing plants on the planet. Right. Uh, so once it gets established, it does pretty well. So find a good spot that is protected, which means it's, uh, you know, protected from harsh winds, you know, maybe uh, an area that uh, that gets good sun, but also doesn't get beaten up by the wind, a little sequestered area, you know, within a you know, hide behind some buildings or around corners, but get sun. And, uh, you know, they should do okay. But go to your local nurseries and they will recommend the type of bamboo that might survive these winters. And why do I want bamboo? What are some of the advantages there? It grows big and fast. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, unless you have a pet panda <laughs> that wants to eat it. <laughs> I can't think of any. Or, you know, you, uh, you, you want to make a nice, uh, a nice fishing pole. You know, I mean, they make the, the little – seriously, they do. They make great fishing poles. You know, if you get a really long strand of thin bamboo, it's, it's a wonderful fishing pole. But other than that, I'm, uh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> but interesting idea. Now, listen, you, you had a comment before about the walkables, and I didn't want to let, uh, you know, walkable plants, in other words, plants you can step on, and I just thought I'd quickly give the, the listener a, a, a two quick ones on this. Oh, good. This. Yeah. Yeah. We, we like thyme, uh, T-H-Y-M-E, you know, and there, there are a couple types. There's woolly thyme and there's creeping thyme, and both of those do well, and they've got a nice fragrance to them, and uh, they got a nice flower in the spring. So, you know, the thymes work well, and there's another one, there's a creeping potentilla that, that works well. So those two I'd recommend for walkable plants that, you know, you put in amongst stepping stones where if you accidentally step on them, it won't hurt them. So, yeah. A creeping potentilla? It sounds like someone I would date. <laughs> Just once, though. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about it. I, I don't know that term. Well, it, it it's a potentilla. Potentilla is, uh, you know, you see them growing. There's large potentilla shrubs and bushes that, that grow wild here in Colorado. But there's a variety that has a little five-petaled leaf. It's a little yellow-flowered. And it just it just grows, uh, you know, it almost has a strawberry. It'll, the leaf of it almost looks like a strawberry leaf in a certain sense, you know. And uh, But it's it's a wonderful little plant, and it does very well around here. So, You teach classes in Colorado Springs on... I don't know how to build hoops and garden beds, what to plant when, and you have one coming up on pests. What secrets do you have for keeping pests away, particularly from vegetables? Well, uh, you know, it's it's preventative, uh, Ryan. And, you know, it's, it's the thing is, you know, once you walk into a doctor's office and you're sick, the doctor tries to cure your illness. Uh, the thing is, what we want to do is the doctor, what doctors should be doing, I guess, and many do, you know, they many do this, is they try to keep the patient healthy. So what we want to do is keep your garden healthy because sick plants or stressed plants attract bugs that eat them because they give off, they give off, a, a, you know, their, their uh, the volatile oils, the scents, the... All that thing, uh, it, it stresses them, you know, it's, and, and bugs 
pick it up and they say, hey, you know, here's a plant that that's calling me in to eat it, you know. And uh, so what you want to do is good, healthy soil. You feed your soil and the soil will feed your plants. So if if that makes any sense to people, the thing is you want good, crumbly soil. They call good tilth. In other words, you can put your hands down in it six, eight inches and just it just crumbles. And uh, so you have to work on it. And homemade compost is a good addition. Um, and again, visit your local independent garden shops and get their advice on the best amendment to use to make your soil fluffier or what they call better tilth. And then once you have better drainage, you know, you'll your plants will grow faster, healthier, and you won't have as many bugs. But we can talk about bugs if you want. Sure. Um, yeah, what, what's the biggest culprit, I don't know, maybe in your own garden? Uh, flea beetles. Um, these are little, th- these just seem to show up one day. They're, if you could imagine the head of a pin uh, being able to fly away <laughs> and actually at a moment's notice, that's what it looks like on your plants, especially things like broccoli and cauliflower and mustards and arugulas. Um, and they sometimes even get a hold of your tomato plants too. But they're little beetles and uh, they lay their eggs and they drop in the soil and they overwinter and then they hatch out. And there's a couple hatchings, but those are tough because they one day they're not there and all of a sudden your plants are covered with these little black dots that you get close to them and they fly away. You don't see them fly away. It looks like they're jumping away. And they're hard to control. But we recommend that you use what is called a row cover. And it's just it's just a very thin fabric that you can put over your plants that whenever you see a sign of, of flea beetle, you know, in your neighbor's garden or whatever around, you got to look, mm-hmm. that you cover them up and keep it there for a couple, two, three weeks, and then take it off because chances are they've gone through their life cycle and they're off eating somebody else's garden, you know. <laughs> so that's, I mean, it's a, it sounds like, okay, but that's what happens. And, um, and, and there are some chemicals out there and uh, you know there's if you're going to if you're going to spray you know you have to be careful because many sprays will kill those good things those good bugs as well as the bad bugs and so you want to be careful on that so but i'm going to recommend just one and you do it late at night after the bees have gone to bed huh you know the honeybees because you don't want to hurt the honeybees and you would spray it with spinosad s-p-i-n-o-s-a-d it's spinosad it's an organic um biological uh compound that that actually does um, deter flea beetles. So if they're really, really active and you didn't get to them, try Spinosad, but spray it after the bees and it'll dry. And then when the bees show up the next day around your garden, they won't be harmed by it. But do it at night. Under the well, you know, after the sun has gone down, you don't have to be you know out there with a flashlight, but because bees usually when the sun goes down, they're heading back, you know, to their hive. So you know, there can be a little daylight out, but not much, not direct sun for sure. So you know, it's usually late dusk. You know, you you do that, and that we would recommend that for any organic spray that you use, spray it after the honeybees have gone, and then uh, let it dry because many times those are are not harmful after they've dried on the plant. Larry, we have so. thirty seconds. What's new in your garden this year? Very quickly. Well, um, we we're planting some um, some more New Jersey um, um, Jersey. Um, called Jersey asparagus. And I think that's just a wonderful variety of asparagus and it's a perfect time to plant it. And if you buy the roots, everybody, bring them home, soak them in water three to four hours with a little bit of fish emulsion uh, fertilizer in the water, mix it up and then plant them in the garden. And and in two or three years, you'll have an abundance of asparagus. Jersey asparagus. Larry, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Well, Well, Ryan, it's been my pleasure. Larry Stebbins leads Pikes Peak Urban Gardens in Colorado Springs. His book is The Backyard Vegetable Gardening Guide, taking front-range and high-country gardeners 
through the year, month by month. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.